welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, this is James, and the Madden America podcast this week is sponsored by Drs. Rani and Suraj Holistic Psychiatry and Mental Health Coaching. Are you ready to make a lasting change in your life beyond diagnosis? Then join Dr. Rani Bora's 12-month group coaching program named Beyond Diagnosis. Get access to one-on-one and group coaching sessions with her, tailored resources, simple but powerful practices to shift your state of being, peer support, and so much more. This unique program starts this March 2023, so don't wait any longer. Start your transformation journey today and unlock your full well-being potential. To find out more, you can visit their website, which is drsranisuraj.com, and I'll spell that for you. It's D-R-S-R-A-N-I-S-U-R-A-J.com. And there you'll be able to find more information and join this unique program. Okay, and now on to our interview. On November 30th, the New Haven Register reported that a group of Yale University students and alumni filed a federal lawsuit against the university seeking to remedy current policies and practices around students with mental health disabilities. The move follows an investigation by the Washington Post on the school's policy of forcing leaves of absence on students believed to be suicidal. This problem is not unique to Yale. Both a lack of access to appropriate on-campus mental health supports and discrimination against students struggling with their mental health are all too common at American high schools and colleges, according to our guest, Stephanie Lynn Kaufman-Timkulu, founder and director of the nonprofit Project Let's. Project Let's, which stands for Let's Erase the Stigma, is a national grassroots organization and movement focused on creating innovative peer-led alternatives to our current mental health system, including peer support and community care, political advocacy, organizing, and mutual aid. It is now active on about 30 college and high school campuses across the country. Stephanie Lynn Kaufman Timkulu is a 2017 graduate of Brown University with a degree in medical anthropology and contemplative studies and was a 2018 Fulbright Scholar. They describe themselves as a white, queer, and non-binary, disabled, neurodivergent care worker who shows up for their communities as a disability justice and mad liberation educator and organizer, parent, doula, peer supporter, writer, and conflict intervention facilitator. Stephanie sits on the Lived Experience Advisory Council for the Psychiatric Services Academic Journal and serves on the board of directors for the Institute for the Development of Human Arts. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Miranda. Happy to be here. So uh, let's get started. Um, When, why, and how did Project Let's get started? Back in 2009, I was a freshman in high school um, on Long Island and in New York. And I lost a friend to suicide um, that October of my freshman year of high school. Um, And it was a very traumatic um, death and situation. Um, and it was handled extremely poorly by our school district. This was back in 2009. Um, but essentially no supports were offered. I remember, um, you know, students who were identified as, um, 
as as knowing her were um you know allowed to leave class and our parents could come pick us up um but that was about it i remember sitting around a table with a bunch of other students who were effectively in shock um you know with guidance counselors educators around us and nobody saying a word and that was the trajectory that followed um following her death and her name was Brittany Marie Petroka and you know there was just no conversations about it and and beyond that there was an intentional effort to dissuade students from talking about her life talking about her death talking about the ways that we felt you know we were not being supported um you know by the people around us who claimed to be the experts the ones that we were supposed to turn to um so that was the the major reason that I started doing this work informally in 2010, um, I was also coming to terms with my own lived experience of, you know, at the time what I described as mental illness. Um, and I entered the mental health system around the same time. I was also deeply impacted by my friend's death and that really brought me into the mental health system. Um, but also I knew that there were borders and boundaries to what I could or should say. Um, and many of the folks around me, my friends, my peers, um, we were supporting each other through um, things that I think the adults around us thought, you know, we had no knowledge of, or, you know, we weren't ninth grade, maybe navigating things like sexual violence or self-injury or eating disorders, but we were, and we knew intrinsically that it was not safe to talk to the adults around us. We knew what would happen. Um, and there was nobody supporting us in obtaining these skills. I remember having a health class in high school where, um, I think we effectively talked about, you know, depression is if you're sad for two weeks or more and anorexia is when you don't eat. And I think that was about it. So there was just no education um, happening really. And still that, that overwhelming belief that if we talked about these things, we were going to be putting tools into people's hands, giving them ideas that they, you know, didn't already know about. Um, so it was better to just, you know, ignore and hope that uh, people weren't affected by it. Um, so I began doing a lot of just one-on-one -on -one peer support work. I was connected with some Girl Scouts communities, um, and I began just sharing some of my experiences um, and really found it to be so important to have community spaces. Um, after Brittany's death, you know, her mother was very um, intentional about having a memorial space and community and brought folks together every year, um, you know, for a fundraising event and, um, you know, having that consistent, you know, reason to come back together for, for a person who's no longer here really taught me the importance of, of ritual. And I think we know that, you know, with death in general, but, you know, with suicide or things connected to mental health or mental illness or disability, there's often so much shame there. Um, so that was really um, when I got started doing work with Project Let's. Okay, so then after you graduated from high school, you attended Brown University. Um, besides difficulty in accessing services, what kind of challenges and problems did you and your fellow students encounter with the system of care on and around campus for mental health crises? I'll say that, you know, very early into my time at Brown, I took myself off of 
all of my psychiatric medication. I didn't want to be on them anymore. Um, I had felt like I was going to my psychiatrist and asking to come off of them. And then I would leave the appointment like on a higher dose and another medication. And I didn't know how that kept happening. And I just decided like I was done and I don't recommend anyone ever doing this, but I just cold turkey stopped everything. And I obviously went into withdrawal and I was very sick. Um, And this was about my second week of classes as a freshman And I decided, like, let's try and start on a transparent note. Um, I remember emailing my professors saying, you know, I was withdrawing from some medications and I was going to be doing some work virtually. um, And then I would be in class probably within the next week or so. And a day later, I got an email from what at the time was called Student Support Services, you know, something to the effect of, you know, one of your professors informed us that you know, you are not doing so well, we'd love to offer you some support and resources, you know, please come in for a meeting. And I was, you know, a freshman naive. I was like, wow, they want to offer me some support. That's great. Um, And I remember showing up in this office and immediately I could tell by the tone and the environment that like that was not the kind of meeting it was going to be. And, you know, the conversation just went along with her being like, you know, there are many students who come here who have like existing mental health issues and they realize within the first couple of weeks that they just absolutely could not handle it. So if you want to, you know, go home, if you want to take a leave, I can help you with the paperwork. And, and, you know, she mentioned, um, at the time I had a diagnosis of OCD when, and she mentioned my diagnosis and that for me, that moment I bring up because it was a huge activation point of like my experiences with paranoia because I was like why does she have access to that information I don't believe that I said it and I don't think you know that should be you know connect that's in my health records like why is that you know why does she know that so you know that for me that meeting actually triggered um you know what we what we could call like an extended psychotic episode or altered states where I just like went back to my dorm and started like deep dive researching all of these things that we're talking about today, these policies, how student, how universities have, you know, historically been involved in, you know, surveilling students in all of these different ways. I became really frightened that I was going to be kicked out of town um, and understood very early on that it was not safe for me to be honest and open with this university about my experiences. And I never was. Um, I never saw a counselor at the at the counseling center. You know, I navigated it in different ways. So um, I just kind of want to set that foundation. And I think from there, I started connecting with a lot of other students and hearing and learning more. You know, we had folks who were being forced to go to health services and get weighed regularly because they were identified to have eating disorders. Um, and this is not not just that. Brown, this was, and I, you know, that's not necessarily current policy. This was at the time, Um, you know, thinking about um, the difficulty with accessing academic accommodations, the repetitive disclosure, the fact that even if you have accommodations that are approved by disability services, the decision still lies within each individual professor if they're going to approve that, what it's going to look like in that classroom. Do you need to share more information? That's like a full-time job. Um, you know, thinking about the fact that there's, you know, virtually 
no accountability for so much of what's happening because you have students who are already um, being targeted and discriminated against and oppressed and we're exhausted and we're students. Um, and that, you know, that's why when I'm thinking about even what's happening with these lawsuits, even if it's just a couple of students being represented within them, I know just even from my own direct experience, you know, hundreds and hundreds of students whose, you know, names or stories will never be known. You know, these are daily, every single day occurrences. It's not something that is out there to be experiencing these things because of the design of these institutions. Um, you know, when we're really thinking about the ways that we are, you know, seen as and treated as liabilities. Um, so I think we see that as well with, um, you know, I've had students from different universities receiving um disciplinary action notices for having panic attacks in like public spaces or engaging in self-injury, uh, being like literally penalized for those things. You know, I think another thing we don't necessarily think about as much, but is is really painful and ingrained is the ableism that happens within the educational curriculum itself. Um, thinking about like abnormal psychiatry classes or abnormal psychology, right? Just even the framing that there is such an abnormal <laughs> psychology and just recognizing that, you know, even trying to be in classrooms where this content is being taught, you have to be prepared at any moment um, to like defend your humanity um, in ways that should not be happening. Um, you know, other things that we saw were like behavioral health contracts, you know, and making, forcing essentially students to engage in certain types of therapy or certain types of care or certain number of sessions per week or month in order to remain on campus. Um, I saw a lot of students who were struggling with their academics due to mental health issues or disability who were essentially, you know, quote, given the choice between an academic suspension or a, you know, again, quote, voluntary medical leave, which is not voluntary, that's coerced. Um, but many students didn't want the the label of an academic suspension, so they would choose that medical leave. Um, and even looking across the board at different universities and the the standards that they have for what students have to do when they're on a medical leave, whether it's voluntary or forced, um, showing that they're working, showing that they're getting treatment. Sometimes they have to, you know, take um, other educational classes in the meantime before coming back and essentially doing like reapplication processes to get back into the schools that they've already been accepted to. Um, and in our society, being accepted to college is, is a, it's a big deal for so many people that defines like pretty much like 18 years of work. If that's what you've been working towards, it could be a part of your identity, something that's connected to our families um, and, you know, where we're getting housing, where we're getting food, um, where we have community. So the threat of, of risking that and leaving that. Um, and maybe going back to environments where we don't have access to the same resources or community, um, you know, is something that keeps many students from not accessing care. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, is that, you know, the majority, if not all of college counseling centers are, uh, you know, operating from very short term therapy models 
that are almost always rooted in talk therapy, um, which is just not really accessible to many students who have like chronic or ongoing or more intensive um, experiences that are outside of like general mental health and wellness. Um, and, you know, we see the the lack of options for, for other students experiencing, you know, mental health crises who often are met with police intervention within their dorm rooms, anywhere on campus, um, and taken to um, hospitals, which is another thing, you know, involuntary hospitalization that happens um, frequently on campus. So lots of different, I think, buckets of issues that are all connected to the fact that we are viewed as liabilities, um, as burdens in these spaces, and it takes a significant amount of work, um, of effort, resources, privilege to be able to like maintain our presence um, in these spaces. Yeah, got it. Um, so I guess that was about the point you started a Project Let's on your campus and um, created the Peer Mental Health Advocate Program. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I was doing, obviously I was doing work with Project Let's before I got to Brown and I never necessarily intended for it to grow into the organization that it has grown into. I think this was just the work that I felt was necessary. Um, and we just kind of, we just kept moving and doing and it shifted and changed over time. And I think some of those things that I saw in my high school experience were just, you know, amplified 10, 15 fold, um, at Brown. Um, and I think, you know, when I got there, I was probably, you know, definitely a little more like trusting of certain administrators and perhaps like the, the will to, to, to actually make changes structurally, which a lot of student organizers have that hope and that faith and that belief. So I did spend about a year meeting with administrators and, you know, proposing, um, essentially a certain, this kind of peer program, but that it was built into the university because I thought it would be, you know, more sustainable that way. Um, and wanting to, you know, have this stamp of approval from all of these people who were connected to mental health on campus. And we went back and forth for many, many, many months. And eventually, you know, we were told that, they the university believed it was too risky to engage in a program like this and they didn't want to do it and at that point I kind of asked myself like okay am I doing anything illegal like I don't think so like we are going to we're going to do this program and I remember um sending out a message on to our like university's daily newsletter basically being like you know we are going to be starting this peer support training going to be like, you know, I don't remember what it was at the time, four or six or eight sessions. Um, and we had for the first cohort, like 60 students um, register for this training. And I built the curriculum from a lot of different lenses and angles, but really looking at the certified peer recovery specialist curriculums and seeing the gaps that existed there. Um, and wanting to make something that was really specific to a student experience that was really culturally and trauma responsive, that considered social, political, and economic factors as core parts of what we experience, that's moving away from a biomedical model and centering, you know, different experiences. So 
um, you know, designed that first version of the curriculum. And we trained like between 50 and 60 students in that first cohort. Um, not everyone became um, PMHAs or peer mental health advocates. Um, but I think it just shows that it was something that was desired. Um, and that was an important moment as well for me to recognize that we just, we, sometimes we just need to stop talking and do something. So, um, tell me a little more about what the peer mental health advocate does to, to help their fellow students. You know, I think, well, first of all, one thing I'll, I'll say is that our peer support program is a little bit different in terms of that everyone has, um, lived experience, um, many college campuses have peer support programs that anyone can join and be part of. And I think, you know, we end up seeing a lot of folks who want to be therapists or want to be social workers who, you know, feel really bad for mentally ill people and are coming from, you know, ideologies and perspectives that are not of like um, equality and, and minimizing those power dynamics. So for us, it was really important that, you know, everyone is is identifying as being part of our communities in some capacity. Um, And, you know, these are students who kind of go through this training that's like skills based and political education based and coming out of it, um, supporting folks, I think, in a more traditional capacity of, of what you might imagine maybe like regular sessions, um, you know, folks might meet weekly or biweekly, um, in person, virtually, um, might be texting throughout the week, depending on, you know, the container of the relationship and the boundaries that are set within it. Um, so some kind of element of, of consistent, like checking in and, and support spaces, um, a lot of our PMHAs do rapid crisis response, um, both for like peers that they are assigned to and working with regularly. And in general, when we are, you know, called in and asked to show up in a space, um, and that can look, you know, many different ways. Um, we'll often go with students to meetings or appointments or, you know, students who have a lot of concerns or fears around, their disability services appointment, we will go with them and move through that together. Um, you know, we'll make calls for people, do the like logistical um, labor that comes along with our identities. Does my insurance cover this? Which provider can I see, you know, helping people actually navigate systems, um, which is so incredibly supportive. Um, I think, you know, giving people options for what, you know, many of our, our students get matched with someone who shares aspects of their identity, their lived experience, and having um, a connection in that way where you see yourself ref- reflected and there's different possibilities than where you're currently standing, I think is, is so critically important. Um, and our students know that we are not connected to the university in terms of we don't share information with the university. We don't report things to the university. We're not mandated reporters in that capacity. Um, And so there's a level of safety and trust that we're able to build with students that, you know, I I don't think could ever be present within um, the mental health system as it stands. Uh, You wrote a report that was able to quantify the positive effect of Project Let's Work. Um, What are some of the highlights? So really thinking for us, you know, we had sent out 
surveys. We were taking pre-evaluations from folks who were using our peer support program and doing uh, evaluations at a six-month point and then following up with folks to really take a look at, you know, what is the effect of this program? So we definitely had a lot of, you know, qualitative responses and, and stories and experiences to share that are so hard to quantify, but particularly in terms of, you know, is this type of peer support working? We saw, um, you know, really significant increases from this cohort of students' data that we were looking at in terms of um, actually putting different coping skills into action, um, feeling more comfortable navigating systems and services on campus, feeling more prepared to navigate a crisis that arises for themselves or a community member. Um, and nearly everyone that we had worked with who, you know, filled out this evaluation form, um, you know, had built um, a very robust crisis and safety plan with their PMHA. For us, it's really important to have access to a crisis and safety plan for everyone so that if and when things happen, we can make decisions that are most in alignment with somebody's um, values, with what they chose for themselves. Um, I have many conversations and narratives of folks that I've worked with, um, folks that have been supported through our program who, you know, talk about the fact that they would have never graduated without the support of their PMHA. Um, you know, we've had people who who uh, wrote letters of support while students were on medical leave and, and helped, you know, their peers, you know, get back into university, supported them, you know, while they were on medical leave and, and the university essentially, you know, forgot about them. I know at Brown and, and many other places, if you're on medical leave, you know, you can't be part of student groups, you can't access um, you know, the gym or the dining halls, you essentially can't really be around campus, um, which is such an isolating experience for folks who've just built new friendships or relationships. So um, thinking about all of those small things that allow us to keep moving forward, someone believing in us. Let's talk a little about the campus chapters. You said there are about 30 now, mostly at colleges and a few at high schools. What are some of them up to and what are some of their successes or challenges? Yeah, I think, you know, um, again, different chapters are doing different things. We have some folks doing, you know, survival work, I think, um, especially since COVID. Um, a lot of our chapters have been looking more inward um, at how do we sustain and support the folks who are you know, showing up here who are part of this community um, rather than maybe necessarily thinking of like, okay, what are the panels we can put on? What is the education that we can do? Not always. I think there are some places that, you know, folks are are needing more of that internal support um, with each other. Um, thinking about grief work, I know that some of our chapters have done regular and continue to hold regular spaces for you know, students to think through, move through, process their grief, um, continuing with peer support, um, you know, thinking about um, organizing for policy change has been a really huge thing on all of our 
um, campuses that happens in, in different ways and to different degrees. Um, you know, at Brown, for example, our, when I was at Brown, um, we were involved in a lot of direct policy change there. I think at the time I was there, if I'm remembering correctly, students had three set. It was between three and five sessions at the counseling center for the entire year. Um, there were so many, you know, very specific policies that we wanted to, um, either get rid of or address. Uh, and that was a big focus. And I think now it's been really great to see how chapters are, continuing that work. I think, you know, challenges are always that, you know, we are the directly impacted people. All of us are coming to this space, having some kind of connection to uh, madness, mental illness, disability, trauma, neurodivergence. Um, You know, we are often used to being the only one or one of a few um, who hold these identities in our classrooms or our larger communities, or we're coming from families where, you know, we were the odd man out, right? So I think there's a lot to be said about just what happens when we put a bunch of people who have experienced similar and totally different types of trauma and harms and have different beliefs about, you know, what causes these things? What is the the root of it? What should we be focusing on? You know, I think Sometimes chapters may be more rooted in in approaching things from a place where we are really rooted, which is a radical orientation. That's not just saying like, you know, we need to increase access to the mental health system. Like we are questioning, like, why does this mental health system exist in this way? Um, and, and, And what are the potentials for harm once we get people through the door? Um, and what can we be doing differently? So, you know, thinking about how our chapters have um, have done that right through building these alternative resource systems where students can go to and access care in a different way has been um, really amazing to see despite those challenges that, that do arise. Um, how can students start a new chapter on their campus? So we have an application that is always rolling on our website. Um, and we have regular orientations throughout the year, um, where folks will receive, um, some training, some introduction to the work that we do, um, and a kind of support system put in place, um, you know, for folks. And, you know, we have a lot of flexibility again, you know, there are folks who are coming to us with really specific issues on their campuses that they want to address. And some folks who are looking for, you know, more structure and that's, the beauty of, of running an organization from um, a disability justice and a mad liberation lens that we have the ability to be flexible in that way and really value the contributions that people bring to the table and the different ways that they see and want to do the work. Um, so, you know, folks can apply at any time. Um, and we basically support students and chapters um, in achieving the goals that they set. Um, and, and, and supporting them in moving through the challenges that exist in, in getting that done on their campuses and organizing and navigating intense dynamics with administrators and in accessing funding. Um, you know, some students have never facilitated a space before. So we do a lot of leadership development work, um, helping folks create anti-oppressive spaces 
um, where we're not replicating the same types of harm that exists within the mental health system or within society. Um, so that's a bit about, you know, how folks can get started. Um, we're doing a, a PMHA training cohort in January. Um, so again, these things are happening throughout the year. Um, and really welcome folks who are interested in this kind of perspective and this work to reach out with questions or to get involved. Um, finally, the family connection. Is Project Let's Initiative something that young people's or anyone's family members can get involved with in terms of gaining support or giving support to their loved one or to the organization? Yeah, so I would say that at the at the moment in terms of getting involved in, you know, the chapter related work that we've been talking about that tends to lend itself more on the youth side. Um, but we absolutely have opportunities um, and are interested in both working with anyone who wants to work with us in terms of, you know, supporting our initiatives um, and then also receiving services. So, you know, something we've done with families and we're really excited about is, um, you know, doing, almost like mediation work with families, right? So something that we've seen be really, um, you know, can put a real barrier in families is, you know, something I experienced where you have a parent maybe calling 911 for their child who's in a mental health crisis. Um, and we had a if, um, something recently like that, or we get requests like this fairly frequently where folks are asking us to kind of come in and help repair harm that's happened within the family. Um, so we might meet with, you know, the person who was hospitalized and then meet with the family members um, and kind of do some separate work to reflect on and process and then, you know, bring folks back together, which for folks who know about transformative justice and community accountability processes, very similar and, and rooted very heavily in those frameworks and foundations of, you know, wanting to have space for folks to take accountability for harm that's happened while recognizing that these things are really nuanced. Um, and we want to move to a place of growth so that the next time a crisis happens, we move through it in a different way. Um, so th this has been one of my favorite parts of like the more direct service work that I do and have continued to do, um, that I've done and continue to do. Um, and so, yeah, many different ways to get involved if you're interested. Um, I recommend reaching out to us at info at projectlets.org. Great. Um, any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh, my goodness. Final thoughts. Um, I'm really appreciative for the space to have this conversation today. Um, you know, I think I want to say that, um, you know, one thing I, I want to caution us around is not forgetting our history and not forgetting, you know, the fact that we collectively as a society have a very, very short term memory. Um, and, it, you know, it's painful for, for me as someone who, you know, even just experienced college a few years ago to be seeing some of the, the news and the way that folks are talking about, you know, even the, the, the new lawsuits, right? as if these things are brand like brand new information. And I recognize that for some people, right, it will always be brand new information. But, um, you know, recognizing that just because something is new to you doesn't mean that it is new. These are things that are not just even new within the last decade or two decades. These are things that have very, very long 
histories, which is why I personally think it's important, you know, to recognize um, our community members as like a politically oppressed class that has a very specific history of oppression within dominant society. Um, and I don't see enough of those connections being made when we have these conversations. It's like, it's almost like, well, you know, Yale is discriminating against these students out of, out of thin air. Where does it come from? You know, I, I want to see um, more attention to the history and the lineages of where these issues are rooted um, so that we can move forward collectively um, and have our histories recognized without repeating these cycles, um, you know, that harm our community members. Um, and I think we have a lot of options and opportunities to do that. Um, and I'm really excited to see some of the organizing and the momentum, um, especially within abolitionist organizing spaces that's happening on this front. Um, so yeah, thank you so much again for, for the conversation, Miranda. Thank you so much for joining us. Our guest has been Stephanie Lynn Kaufman Timkulu, who is the executive director of Project Let's. I'm Miranda Spencer, and this has been Mad in the Family. So thank you for listening. And a reminder that we're sponsored this week by Drs. Rani and Suraj Holistic Psychiatry and Mental Health Coaching. Their unique 12-month coaching program named Beyond Diagnosis starts this March 2023. So to find out more about the program and to sign up, visit the website doctorsranisuraj.com where you'll be able to find out more and get in touch with Rani. So as always, thank you for listening and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates. 